0: You know, black, indigenous people of color whose stories and narratives have been marginalized for so long that it has become almost invisible. It's become invalidated and carrying that weight of being so invisible and having to assimilate to white culture to be able to have you know to have anything to to have a space at the table.
1: We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy and the church because we really need to tell better stories. Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different? Welcome back to the podcast, friends, and this is episode 76 with Pastor Christine Hung. She is, her husband is the district superintendent for the Church of the Nazarene's Northern California District. And she is overseeing pastoral development on that district. You just heard that clip at the beginning. That's about two thirds of the way through the episode. So a couple things that I wanna highlight from this episode. She makes a comment about the difference between mentoring and coaching. She says, mentoring is about the being and coaching is about the doing. So mentoring is about being a pastor and coaching is about what you do as a pastor. Oh, I thought that was such a great distinction. There is something about be- being a pastor, uh, like it, it becomes not just your identity, but your mindset, how you think and how you behave. And it's an approach to life. I mean, obviously it's your call. I wish we would have dug into that a little bit more, but we we do talk about that difference, uh, mentoring and coaching and lifelong learning and the importance of lifelong learning, uh, which reminds me, The Wesleyan Holiness Women Clergy Conference is March 2022, and This Is Her Story will be at that conference. So I hope, I I am going to put that information in the show notes. Check it out. You will be encouraged. I really believe that as we're coming out of this pandemic, this is going to be something that will really help and fuel your ministry, revive it, rejuvenate it. And if you go to the pot, and if you go to the conference, then come and see me because I'm a vendor there. And I'm going to do some live podcasting while I'm at the conference. I'll keep you updated on how that works. So those of you who are not at the conference can check out some of the live podcasting that we're doing. Uh, anyway, I have to, I have got a lot of learning to figure out how this is going to work, but it'll it'll it's going to be good. It's going to be exciting. We also talk a little bit about paragraph nine fifteen in the manual of the Church of the Nazarene, and I am going to post a link to that paragraph in the show notes, which has to do with uh, the Nazarene Church's stance on racism. So we talk a lot about about that, and also now which is a, um, uh, a ministry or a movement that sh- she and several others are heading up in helping to start the conversation of diversity, inclusivity, uh, having conversations around the issue and the topic of racism and just making room at the table, I'm all about making room at the table, which is of course why I do this podcast. So not just, not just women clergy, but making room at the table for people of color and digging, you know, not getting trapped in our, what do they call it, echo chamber? Not getting trapped in our echo chamber, which is why I've been trying to expand and have other voices outside of my own denomination on the podcast. And so I do have some other uh, women clergy coming up on the podcast who are not Nazarene, and so I'm anyway. So I'm excited about that. But I think this is going to be uh, a challenging episode for some people. You might have to listen to it a couple of times. I know when I went back through and I edited it, there were some things that really jumped out that I didn't even really hear the first time around when when she and I were having the conversation. And so I, I realized, wow, I've go, I've got some. Uh, processing that I need to do myself of how can I be uh, a person who is elevating other people? Obviously, this podcast is one of the ways that I do that, but how can we make that a regular part of our ministry? And we really just have to be intentional about these things. And here's one of the things that kind of came to mind. All of us have uh, a hot button, I guess. Something that we're really passionate about, and so for some of you, it's not that you don't care about the issue of racism, but you're that's not that's not the drum you're beating, right uh like I think about dr kim Kimberly Majeski, who was on the podcast, and she's all about helping women who have been trafficked, you know sexual sexual trafficking of women and exploitation. And so it's not that she doesn't care about racism, but her call has been to that issue, right? So all of us have something that is not necessarily our hot button. So so hear me say this, you don't have to go out tomorrow and start a nonprofit. You're just being encouraged here to have conversations, to look for ways where you can be someone who's helping to solve the problem, and not add and create the problem right we always want to be the person who is uh, if nothing else making room for the people who god is rising up right now to address this issue so let's just not be if if our if the one thing that we can take away from this episode is i'm not going to be a stumbling block awesome awesome so good stuff in this episode you're gonna love it and you're Some of you might hate it and that's okay. Um, that's one of the ways that God stretches us. husband was elected superintendent about four years ago and so what's your role you do the pastoral development on the district what what's like what's your primary like role and responsibilities there
0: so i feel like i've been able to kind of grow that role develop it as i've been going along and and so depending on what season of the year it is depends on where i put a lot of my attention right yeah so i'm Uh, chairing the board of ministry and so when it comes to during the the assessment and the interviews and and whatnot like I am eating breathing you know just everything to do with board of ministry uh, literally around the clock um, during that time so I've um, this last year we've done a lot of restructuring on the board of ministry like looking at all our systems and our our process um taking a step back and looking at where all the gaps are uh and and trying to fill those gaps really intentionally uh and that with my teaching background i have a background in education uh, so that's a little bit in my wheelhouse and and bringing in new initiatives of coaching which i'm really excited about we're partnering with point loma and their center of pastoral leadership and bringing in coaching where we have coaches that are ordained elders mm-hmm. and developing them as coaches while having ministerial prep candidates being coached under them, um, and and we've j- this is our first month launching them and wow. uh, I just led uh, m- on my cohort our cohort um, just this beginning of this week just a couple of days ago. And it, it's really exciting. It's so exciting because we're being so intentional about what helps a pastor thrive in ministry, right. especially when she or he is like leading um, the church after, after full, um, you know, being ordained and why not. So it's been, it's been really good and mentoring. So partnering an ordained elder with a ministerial candidate um for one-on-ones and, and talking more about the being of the pastor, whereas the coaching is more the doing. I feel like a fresh wind of interest from our ordained pastors to be involved in this. Um something about the pandemic, even though people are socially distanced and hiding behind masks and, you know, more online than and than face to face, it's been like drawing our our community closer together, right? Because we've been meeting more online and and I feel like there's a developed interest in collaboration in um relationship and and so there's that I feel from my standpoint this newness in in wanting to be with one another and supporting one another. So that's been really exciting. Um also caring for pastors, so just leading committees for the for benevolence funds. Um, We have a mental wellness clergy grant on our district. That's Um, wonderful. Yeah. And that has been a godsend. Like we've had more applicants this year due to pandemic challenges in any year that we've done this and like since we've started. And and that's been really life giving for me to have not just pastors, but even their whole families have access to um, this kind of care where they would not have been able to and normalizing it, right? Right. So even from our first uh, retreat or our first meet the DS events, we tried to normalize therapy from the get-go because care for our pastors is really important for both Albert and I. Um, Diversity and inclusion team, I've been leading that. It's a little slow going, but Mm -hmm. what I've most been able to do is any of the processes that I'm involved with, to be able to represent uh, a diversity lens. How is this impacting our our underserved languages? How is this impacting those that are not usually, um, their voices are not usually centered? And and so even when it comes to our ministerial prep training, bringing in other languages as the main language for our teaching sessions, and then having English speakers wear the translation devices. Like, oh, know, that's see? fun! Yeah so, yeah, so just to center other other languages, and and um, and as far as equity goes, knowing that some of our underserved languages they don't have access to a lot of the training and forming and educating. Um, and so this year we really want to focus on, like even our budget shows it, like just on the development of of um, non-English pastors. So doing a lot of uh, coaching groups or mentoring with women in leadership, having holding events for women clergy, um, you know, so, so things like that. A lot of care calls, yeah, just so a lot of different hats. And and trying to figure out where the Lord is leading me really day to day, <laughs> I feel like.
1: That's great that you are, that you're calling on on your pastors and checking on them. Uh, you know, I think that's, is there such a need for it, especially right now, um, as we're, this pandemic has just gone on for so long and we're, you know, we're just all exhausted and pastors are getting ready to, you know, so many of them have quit. So many of them, you know, think about quitting every day. <laughs> will you talk a little more like how does your mental wellness that well mental wellness program
0: for your clergy how does that work so i connected um with uh with sunny arnold who is the president of um now i have to get this right christian counseling centers uh which is mostly situated in the bear area uh and and beyond and so he has a network of therapists he has his his own his own practice uh, with therapists, but also like an extensive network. It is not really necessarily an application. We don't see if people, do they really need it or not? It's more like just filling out an, uh, uh, an info document so that I can send it to Sunny and say, okay, this is the need. Which therapist do you think would be the best for this person? And then we just... Um, this, especially due to pandemic, we've just, usually we try, it, try to make it a matching grant, um, right. with the church and with the district funds, Albert and I, because we believe in this so much, we've put in our own, um, given back from our own salaries into this mm-hmm. fund because it's important to us. Uh, but because of pandemic, the churches are struggling, uh, the district of just carried the whole, the whole bill for six sessions. And right. then reassessed needs after that. Uh, so that's basically it. We the the applicants, I don't want to call them applicants, but those that are asking for this they'll they'll send me the information, and I will code their name. So not even Albert will be aware of who is getting this help. right? That's because it isn't really normalized across the board, and there's still a negative stigma. Um, It's just to encourage anonymity and saying you know like this is all confidential Uh, so that's what that's how we run that that fund
1: oh that's great I know we have a little bit of we have something but it's not I don't know that's as formalized as that so but it's great to see that happening um, and then and hopefully you're your district will, you know, set the example for other districts um, and other denominations as well, as so we're going to start seeing that happen across the board for, for exactly. clergy. I think it's just, it's so important. And there's so many that get to a place where they probably would have stayed, but instead they they just quit or they just put their resume out there and they move on to another church rather than, you know, they, a counselor could have helped them through some of those things and they might have found some, be, be re energized or, or found some healing in order to continue and really kind of push through that wall. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that you guys are doing the mentoring and the coaching. Like we have mentors, uh, we require all of our candidates to have mentors. Um, but the coaching, and I like how you said being versus doing. So the mentoring is more on, you know, being a pastor versus what you do as a pastor. So on your coaching, do you do like one-on-one coaching or is this like group coaching? I know you just started this, but what kind of, what's your plan going forward on it?
0: So we have two coaches and and we're gonna put in place ways that we can assess each other as coaches just to, okay. so that even those that are serving are being developed. And then we have about five to seven coachees, um, participants from the ordination process, the ministerial prep process, um, join it. And so they meet together. But then the coaches as well, we have our own space where we are being coached by, it's Derek Taylor from the Center of Pastoral Leadership who is helping us implement this, uh, who just received a substantial grant um, in, on the topic of coaching um, especially right. pastors to, to be able to thrive in ministry. Uh, and so he's been, he's committed to walking with us for at least three years. And, and so it really is bringing areas of stuckness in ministry, and especially when it comes to their own personal development plan within a ministry context, and then kind of um, together collectively Uh, supporting the person bringing their area of stuckness and just with that collective wisdom and discernment uh, to bring that person out of stuckness. So that's sort of the, the process and then just resourcing them with different tools. That's important for
1: longevity. I, I think we do, you know, like we'll do the usually seminary or even undergrad has you do the life, life plan kind of thing. Here's your life plan. And then you forget that, you know, developmentally as adults, we do, uh, we continue to develop. And so you hit when you, whether you're 25, 35, you hit these different places and you need to go back and reassess all of that. And you have to continue to develop. So are you doing the coaching now? Is this primarily for your ministerial candidates or is this for ordained ministers or how, how are you distinguishing between the
0: so the coaches are all um, ordained elders mm-hmm. and again like i said they're being developed as coaches as well but the coaches at this point are all from the the ministerial prep process gotcha so they are all district licensed oh that's great
1: it is really it's important early on uh, but i think it's important later on too i know i've got i got myself a coach um a couple of years ago and that has real. i mean i've heard about coaching and stuff but wow, it really did help, really to start breaking through some areas where I was personally stuck, um, and I I think that having that coach, as well as a mentor, really is what helped me to, you know, make it to ten to year ten, you know, in the same assignment. Because um, so often we'll hit, you know, year five, six, or seven, and then we hit that wall, and we think, well, we're we're done, a- and it might not be that we're actually done in that location as much as it is. We just need to level up a little bit, you know, in our skill sets and stuff.
0: Yeah, lifelong learning is a so is so key, right? Um, and so even for Albert and I, we're leading different groups, um, not so much in this coaching initiative, but beyond that um both of us are coaching different groups regularly and and it's not even so much that we have the expertise it's like as an Albert and I individually but that we as in the collective right are the community of learners um together so much better Mm -hmm. um than being what tends to be siloed pastors or even districts being siloed, where just especially during pandemic, we're learning how um, any collaborative effort uh, being together has been such a lifesaver for for so many of us that's been struggling.
1: Especially the last few months, I've joined a few peer-to-peer groups, and oh, it's made such a difference, especially as we're you know, as we're moving to the backside of this pandemic and you know that, you know, God has some new things for us to launch and to try. And uh, there's a tendency to want to hold back. But when you get in that peer-to-peer group and you kind of encourage one another, or, well, what are you trying? Or what are you trying? You maybe have this little bit more of a safety net to feel like you can take some risks because you're all in it together, you know?
0: Yeah. And to normalize failure and, and see- right. Failure is such a blessing. Like we learn so much from failure.
1: Yeah, yeah, that is so true. I know, and it's, it's nice to be able to say to one of my peers, "Yeah, we tried this, and it was a it was a hot mess." You know, and be able to <laughs> exactly. laugh at yourself. And yeah, I know you're doing well. Actually, I want to before I I, I want to talk about now movement. Before I do that, I want to talk a little bit about your call to ministry. So, you were raised in Canada but then you went back to Korea for a while and then you live there.
0: Were you going to school there? So I went to Korea. I taught English, um, did some schooling as well, and then came back to Canada for a year and then moved out to Taiwan um, and taught at a international school there for three years, um, mostly to uh, missionary kids. So serving the missionary community there. And then moved to California. So you started as a
1: teacher and I know that's what you said your background is. So when did you have a sense of a call to ministry, specifically like ordained ministry?
0: So when, um, so Albert started off at Trinity Church of the Nazarene as a worship pastor while he was attending seminary at Azusa Pacific and the lead pastor stepped down. He became the associate pastor um while he was still attending seminary and then that next lead pastor stepped down and then he was called as the lead pastor to this beautiful expression of the church just very multi-ethnic and started off as a very inward-facing church but then had their fingers in every part of the community uh and then later um became multi-site as we adopted a second campus during that time uh i'm having children and raising them and homeschooling and teaching piano but immersed completely in church ministry um, whether it was first of all like just leading a youth group a small group and then women's ministry and then directing all the small groups and then at that point i felt like you know I'd love to just be more resourced to to partner in in these different areas of ministry. And so I started with the course of study without any real intention of being fully ordained. But after taking my history of polity and my, my holiness course, thinking, oh my goodness, I am absolutely in love with the Church of the Nazarene. It's not just the church that happens to be Nazarene, but this is such a beautiful expression um, as a denomination of the body of Christ. And so um, during that time, I felt called and I'm like, I, so I've been serving the church since I was in middle school playing piano for, for the congregation. And then leading the youth group and teaching sunday school like i have the church has been my life and even being raised uh, in a korean church uh, when you're an immigrant family your church becomes the place of identity and the central point of your of your living it's not school it's not work it's your church community the lord just uh forming my identity within that church culture but never being exposed to women in leadership. And so I never thought that was even an option, you know, me being ordained or me becoming a pastor. And so as I was learning these things, I'm like, I, oh my goodness, the Lord is calling me. Like, Lord, are you calling me? And just wrestling with this um, and trying to um, reconcile passages that I felt at the time was distinctly against, you know, women in in leadership. And even, and I will tell you, and I will say this publicly, that when I took my first preaching course, my professor, I talked to my professor about this, and the professor said, well, Christine, I did my dissertation on um, theology and women in leadership, and I've come to the conclusion, this is a Nazarene pastor teaching a course of study in the Church of the Nazarene, and he said he's concluded that women should not be in pastoral leadership. So he said, Christine, take all the courses, but don't get ordained. And so that, of course, made things so much more complicated Mm -hmm. when it came to my own journey and my own calling. So as I was wrestling with that, the Lord, as he does, starts bringing all these women, ordained elders into my life um, beyond our own church setting. Like, for example, Carla Sundberg, right? And, um, and encouraging me and, and modeling for me just this such an authentic expression of, um, of following God's will as a woman in pastoral leadership. And, and uh, Carla, who at the time was uh, NTS's president, saying, Christine, you know, you already have a degree. Why are you in the course of study? Why don't you go into your master's program, you know, for a master's to get your mantive? And I'm like thinking, me? Like, like <laughs> me, like, really? Like, and, and that just seemed like such a stretch. And after really praying about it, God's like, yes, this is an open door for you. And I'm calling you to walk in obedience and step through that door. And so I'm in my last few classes, like my last year of my MDiv. And it's been such a blessing. Um, And then when we did adopt a second campus, um, the church called me to pastor that second campus and feeling just walking through the hallways into the sanctuary and being overwhelmed with the emotion Mm -hmm. for just love towards the congregation and just so grateful for God's calling on my life. Like it was just, you know, I just, it is, yeah. Can't, can't deny God's calling when it's just so, when it's so obvious in, in your face, you know?
1: Right. So many women will be encouraged. Which, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I do this because, you know, we've been ordaining women since really before we were even an official denomination and, you know, Wesley himself was such a a proponent of God has poured out a spirit on all of us, men and women, and called us to to preach this good news. I, I felt like, you know, I know so many women who are doing great things for the kingdom and expanding, you know, her borders and laying down inroads, uh, and more people need to hear those stories. So. Um, you're working with the Now Movement, which now that's actually a Nazarene organization, right? Am I well, saying that, that right? How, how, it, how? Yeah, tell me about it.
0: <laughs> I would not say that it's an officially Nazarene organization. It's not, we have not been commissioned or authorized um, by any leadership, denominational leadership to to do this. It's more of a collective grassroots movement, okay. um, and anybody that is involved, like our steering team, is made up of all Nazarene pastors, professors, leaders, and most of our participants in in on the events and um, initiatives that we we have are mostly Nazarene, um, but there have been some others that that have uh, jumped on the bandwagon, so to speak, but. So now movement is uh, a major part of my life right now where I'm giving a lot of energy and attention to. But it all started when I sat in front of my computer and watched on social media with the rest of the world, George Floyd being murdered. Mm-hmm. And after that incident, you know, I was so overtaken by God's mourning and grief over what was happening. Uh, And I felt the Holy Spirit activate me at that moment. You know, like I, at that moment I pictured Cain and Abel and the Lord is saying, look, your brother's blood is crying out, you know, from the ground. And, Mm. and, And I just, I felt that so deeply. You know, and saying, Christine, what are you going to do about it? Are you just going to sit behind a computer screen and be just overtaken with how sad and unfortunate it is, or are you going to make a difference? And after that, I um, I realized, even as a district leader, that I could make a difference on my own district on how what our structures and processes are like in our district and whether or not they are inclusive and uh, equitable and just even. And, and so I actually just put on social media, I put on my Facebook and said, hey, are there any other district leaders out there that wants to talk about D&I initiatives, um, diversity and inclusion initiatives? And within a couple of days, like I had 50 people from like, almost 20 different districts, you know, saying, yes, like, let's do this. And and so within a week and I said, well, since there's like so many of us uh, and God, again, as he does, started introducing to me all these um, experts in the field. Um, So, for example, the National Director for Diversity Inclusion for InterVarsity. Right. So meeting her or other. Um, practitioners in the field, and, and I said, hey, so I have a group of 50 um, district leaders, pastors, uh, wanting to have this conversation. Would you want to just like come by and um, maybe give us some feedback and say, yeah, I would love to, like, especially in light of what happened with George Floyd, people are just getting activated from in, in every organization. And so I invited about five or six um experts in the field. And so we had district leaders come and share, this is our hopes and plans, our strategies, and to bring our districts more aligned to an intercultural expression of the body where there's full participation, where everyone is valued. And then these experts would give feedback to all these strategies. And that came out to an eight page document of strategies and feedback and next steps and whatnot, and so I offered that online. I said, "Anybody want to have further conversations on this? Anybody want access to this eight-page document?" And like within a couple of weeks, I had 250 people, right, from across U.S., Canada, in our denomination, saying, "Yes, I want that document. Yes, I want to be part of these conversations." You know, and months after that, like I have over 800. People receiving newsletters that hasn't unsubscribed un, unsubscribed yet, <laughs> and um, and people following our Facebook page, and and engaging in different events and initiatives that we have. I have nine other people on the steering team, and um, and and we we meet regularly and think about well what else can we do. This is all volunteer, but it's people that are already doing the work in their own spheres of influence there has been pushback which is why i hesitated when you say well this is a church of the nazarene organization um because i think a lot of people within the church of the nazarene would kind of flinch at that you know at that comment Uh, we've gotten pushback, a lot of misunderstanding i know that there are secret facebook groups that take screenshots of some of the things that we're doing or posting and uh, and maybe even vilifying it on in their own within their own groups. People think that we are um, calling everyone racist. That we want white people to feel guilty. Um, that we're trying to be divisive and and just break apart the church. And if any of those people actually attended our events you would say that you would see that it's the exact opposite right i i would say the heart of now movement is fully expressed in the church of the nazarene manual you know on statement 915 on discrimination yeah. like yeah. every this robust theological statement everything about that is everything who we of of who we are and what we want to do but that's our heart like we we try to educate, convene, equip, resource, provide spaces, safe spaces for especially BIPOC leaders to just tell their own stories. Um, we have white spaces for people to understand their own white identity, um, just for pastoral pastors and leaders as pra- practitioners, how to move forward in, in these sorts of conversations. So that's that's who we who we are, how we came about in a nutshell. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, and I'll
1: definitely include some of the links uh, in the show notes so people can connect up with you and get on your newsletter and stuff like that. Um, what are some like maybe one or two practical things that people could do to begin moving towards having a a more inclusive. mindset, I guess, if you will, or at least embracing this idea of us making the conversation about racism normative so that we start having those conversations?
0: That is such an important question. Um, And we're still figuring out how to normalize the conversation. You know, one denominational leader, I'm not going to name who, but that person told me conversations of racial reconciliation and wanting to lead and facilitate those things are a waste of time for the Church of the Nazarene because those that are against any conversation that has to do with race and seeing it more of a political uh, stance rather than a gospel-centered conversation, they will never change their minds They will never want to engage in the conversations and we're just going to have to wait for that generation to die out and wait for the younger generation to rise up and just believe and hope and pray that they will intrinsically have that DNA um, that's more postured towards inclusion uh, just happen naturally. And, And I found that statement really discouraging and disappointing because I believe that Uh, As leaders of the church, we have to become more intentional and strategic about these conversations and fully, like just be completely away from any sort of uh, politically polarized conversations, but to be very gospel centered, you know, especially um, in the Wesleyan tradition, Um, through a holiness lens, like living out our holiness through these conversations. The CEO of Christianity Today, he said, Timothy Dalrymple, he wrote this article, and he talks about, in light of the political polarization, not just of the nation, but of of, of the church, he talks about this model or this ideology, I suppose, of a flag and a table, right? And so it is to, yes, have a firm opinion, um, but then, to invite free discussion, right, so it's like having a stake in the ground and saying, I believe in this, I feel activated by the by by the Lord to really stand up for this, that it is very gospel centric um but then to set a table of fellowship, right, where we are honoring each other, where we are loving each other. a lot of our leaders, a lot of pastors talk about via media, right, the middle way. Um, and, I, and I feel like sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes this is used as an excuse to avoid having to take a stand on controversial issues. But but Wesley, I don't know if that was his intention. He, so he his belief being, you know, we don't have to think alike, but we do have to love alike, right? We don't need to agree on everything, but that doesn't mean we need to water down our strong beliefs. Um, it does not mean that we shouldn't take certain sides or, um, certain postures or certain stance, but what Wesley is saying is that we have to love deeply in the midst of that conversation, that we have to commit to the relationship, right? That we have to listen to every voice at the table and honor every voice, to, to love your neighbor, to love the other, whether it is an ethnic other, whether it is a political other, you know, that we are to love them and and to consider that Jesus was very controversial. You know, that Jesus He overturned tables, you know, but that Jesus also set a table, you know, where his own self-sacrifice was the meal for the sake of all at the table. Right. And so when it comes to steps or, or, um, or strategies, as you say, I think the key thing is, um, you know, besides this model of a flag, and a table of knowing what you believe, and seeing that in a very deeply rooted theological lens, um, but to love within that, um, I think some of the keys are uh, intimacy and empathy proximity is so important. We can dehumanize others so easily. Like on Facebook, I try my darnest to be kind and honoring. And there are people, pastors, leaders, people that say that they love Jesus and that I believe that they love Jesus that are so mean and vindictive and, you know, just criminalizing one another for, you know, seeing one thing or the other. Um, And so this intimacy that I'm talking about is, you know, don't avoid intimacy with the political or the ethnic other, but to draw closer in relationship and to exercise empathy, to hear their stories, I really liked, you know, when it comes to this, a racialized conversation and what I'm talking about, there is uh, this one author, Drew Hart, and he wrote uh, this book called The Trouble I've Seen. Um, and it's talking about oh, just racism within the church. And, and he tells this story, and I love, I think it's just such an important story as we're talking about empathy, where he's sitting down uh, at some fast food restaurant with a white uh pastor and he's he's an african-american he's he's black and and the white pastor sets a table uh, a cup on the table and there's an image on one side and logo on the other and he tells um drew he says you know we just have to understand each other's perspective you don't know what's on my side of the cup and i don't know what side what's on your side and so you need to learn from me you know my perspectives as as I need to learn from you and your perspectives, and and Drew he comes up with with this response. He says, "This is where the inaccuracy lies." You know, when it comes to your side of the cup, I understand it well. You know, as a black man in predominantly white spaces, you know, I have learned to code switch. You know, I've learned Eurocentric history, um, theology written in a white perspective. I've learned about white musicians and artists. I've had white teachers and professors. I've read white authors. I've seen white intellectuals like give lectures. And I am in a white dominated culture through where, where it's expressed in media, in education, in So many different aspects. Like, I know your side of the cup. But do you know mine? Do you know what my blackness means to me? Do you know my history, my stories, my music, my food, my theological lens, you know, my positions and... and, beliefs and and so this is a time you know I'm not talking about white supremacy or any of those words that are just so triggering for people I'm just talking about people of color you know black indigenous people of color whose stories and narratives have been marginalized for so long that it has become almost invisible it's become invalidated And carrying that weight of being so invisible and having to assimilate to white culture to be able to have you know, to have anything to to have a space at the table, right? right? Like it's it's it is a weight that I feel like, you know, a lot of the BIPOC people that I've come I've been coming across and engaging with that they just can't hold that weight anymore. It is it it's it's painful. It's so damaging to, to church, to the unity of the church, and for us to express the love of God to those beyond the church walls. We're losing our credibility, you know, every time we say, no, we're not talking about race, no, we're not going to talk about any of these conversations where they think it's polarizing, but actually the lack of conversation, the lack of engaging is what's polarizing. Right. Right? This is the reason why so many of our anointed, gifted, called young clergy that they have one foot out the door and so right. many have left. Things that I've just been really thinking about. And and so, Joanne, these days, I've been in other spaces, like this, um, a lot of ecumenical spaces talking about racial reconciliation. Right. And it's everywhere, Joanne. Mm-hmm. Like different organizations, different denominations, um, secular, in the secular world, everybody is talking about it, yeah. but we are not.
1: Mm-hmm. and.
0: That's got to change. It really does.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We need to rise up and be truly Wesleyan holiness again. I think I don't think we can truly call ourselves Wesleyan holiness if we don't embrace, um, you know, the diversity. One of the things you made a comment about when you took your history and polity class, that's when you fell in love with the denomination, which is what happened for me also. I mean, um, I've been in Nazarene for a few years when I started a course of study but that was this idea of um, you know a big tent was so appealing, and that there were room for men and women, um, people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, people of color, you know, even in those early days when we weren't that far from the the end of slavery, where the Church of the Nazarene was the place where you could come if you were a person of color and and find a place to belong. Um, and so we, we need to rise up and be about those things again. That's so true. Well, I love uh, what you're doing. I know there's some people in our district who have been in some of your Zooms uh, that you've had for that group uh, to have those conversations. And I think that it's important for us to keep having those conversations. We, you know, we've seen that, we've seen it, the, like the ebb and flow of it really since, you know, since Martin Luther King, but it seemed like it had kind of died down for a while, like we were convinced that we had overcome this obstacle and racism wasn't a thing anymore. But, you know, last year showed us that the work wasn't done, that we still have a lot of work to do.
0: And yeah. us being, you know, the, the mostly the white community, right? Um, right? The African-American community, they would say it's never been done you know, this is my, my reality, you know, them walking out their door and wondering, okay, what am I going to face today because of the color of my skin? Um, Asian Americans, especially in light of COVID, uh, the anti-Asian hate crimes that are, that still are not being recognized. Uh, I talk about some of these things and a lot of, uh, My just white sisters and brothers, they're like, what? I haven't heard of any of this. But you ask any Asian American on the street, they are so, so aware. You know, 3,800 incidents of of hate crimes against Asian Americans just in this past year.
1: Wow. Um,
0: Yeah, like we're talking, you know, 90-year-old elderly men being pushed By pushed over by complete strangers on the streets, being spit on, being cut, you know, um, being like these elderly women being burned, you know, set on fire, or you know, being pushed over and having their their skulls bashed in by this total stranger, like Mm -hmm. incidents after incidents. Um, and, and it not, this is not a new thing. It seems like if you just look at our history right. and see the racism, yes, against, uh, the black community, but against Asian Asians as well, the Latinx community, um, indigenous. Oh gosh. Like, uh, there is so much history that we need to be aware of, um, and not say, well, the past is the past, you know, it is, it is not that it's like to understand how the past has impacted every fabric of relationships that we are in with, with one another, you where know, there's just so much to, to, to learn, deconstruct and reconstruct as far as, uh, race identities go.
1: I had a pastor call me a few years ago and they said, they said, "I know this isn't true, but I'm just calling so that I can say I talked to someone uh, in your area that verified it because they had gotten um, they had leaders in their church telling them that the Muslims had taken over Dearborn, Michigan, and that the the police were uh, had lost all control and there were beheadings happening in the city." um, I'm 15 minutes from Dearborn and I shop there all the time at Aldi's. I'm, I don't have a problem. I'm not nervous about it. I'm like, I don't know where this nonsense is coming from. And and he said, I know. He says, I'm just from, he says, I'm just from a white rural town. And I figured it was nonsense, but I figured I should probably make sure I can, I can say, and I thought, is this really what, what the nonsense that we're spreading because we're so afraid and we hate so much that we'll even make up just nonsensical stuff. And, and these are leaders in their churches spreading it around.
0: Oh dear.
1: So the conversation definitely needs, we need to have these conversations.
0: There, there are some glimpses of hope, you know, yeah. where people are trying to reach across whether racial lines, political lines, um, to exercise empathy, you know, intimacy. So I do. I do have hope. I do, and God will always be a God of hope, and and so I anticipate and I see God moving yeah. uh, with my with the steering team for now movement to sitting in spaces with them and sharing stories and lamenting but also celebrating it's oh gosh it's one of my favorite places to be
1: you know i'm always looking for just words of encouragement advice and advice so whether it's practical or or spiritual or whatever words of advice to in particular i would say um women of color who are sensing a call to preach and you know just navigating this whole thing
0: I would say whatever insecurities or doubts you have, don't make it worse by pouring guilt or feelings of shame in that, but use that as a strength. You know, that's what I always say to to uh, women in leadership, whether women of color or not, that your weaknesses is really where God shines the brightest. Right. Where... You just lean into the spirit with everything that you have, saying, God, it has to be you, it has to be you. You know, I do have this little ma- mantra every time I walk up to the podium to speak or the platform. I'm like, God, it has to be you, it has to be you. It's got to be all you. It can't be me, it has to be you. I just say that over and over. And then I stand in front of the people and I'm supposed to be addressing, and I just allow the spirit just to reveal his love to all of the people sitting there. And then I'm like, yes, this is where I need to be. This is exactly where God is calling me to be. And, and I think that is something really wonderful, especially about women and especially about women of color, where we have been taught not to value ourselves right. or to have confidence in ourselves and, and to give that all over to God and say, nope, I'm going to have confidence in you. That is our strength. That is absolutely your strength. If if we do not come from that posture, you know, then we will be burnt out. We'll be discouraged. We will give up. We will have major insecurities and doubts about ourselves. It has to come from God. It has to be you. It has to be you. It has to be you. And not to be invisible, not to feel like you know that God isn't calling you. Um, Asian Americans, they've they've been called. Um, the the invisible model minority where we've been taught to to stay small or mm-hmm. or not to voice you know um, loudly things that we we strongly believe in but that that ch- that change is coming it's here where mm-hmm. women and especially women of color which has been such a silenced voice but yet such an important aspect who of the wholeness of God, you know, where I feel like the spirit is just drawing us, you know, drawing women, the marginalized minorities, um, to have their voices centered. And so to to take up that call, express the gospel the, that that unique expression of the gospel through your life and through your voice.
1: Absolutely. We need more women at the table, not less. <laughs> we need yeah. more. The more that we have, the, the, the more we reflect, you know, really the true nature of God in this world and to others and, and, make the, and make his body
0: attractive.
1: Well, I really appreciate you taking time out to come and be on the podcast and Aww. share your
0: heart it's been great and I've been loving just to, just to seeing some of your work and you know and 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 I've loved being able to listen in and seeing what you're doing and I really appreciate your ministry oh
1: good well thank you so much I appreciate yours too and one day I can get out to California
0: in person <laughs> <laughs> a
1: vegan person.